0: To you second Kings chapter 10 this evening if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles just get their attention and uh, you can follow along not only with your ears this evening but also with your eyes and uh, enjoy it a little bit more fully. First Kings chapter 10. We pick things up kind of in the middle of something that has begun. And since we've had a three week absence related to uh, Sunday nights, might be good to just review a little bit. A king. We're dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel uh, among the Jews and a, a man by the name of Jehu has been called by God and commissioned by God uh, to become the next king over the northern kingdom of Israel and that it was and that it fell upon him to utterly destroy the bloodline or the lineage or the dynasty of the most evil king that the northern kingdom of Israel ever knew, certainly up to his time, a king by the name of Ahab. And Ahab was married to a very wicked woman by the name of Jezebel. And so God had warned way back in 1 Kings chapter 21, He had warned Ahab, uh, through the prophet Elijah, that because of your wickedness, because of the introduction of uh, Baal worship among my people, because of the bloodshed of your wife toward the prophets of, uh, of Jehovah, and you turning a blind eye, your own wickedness, without repentance i 'm going to bring an end to your bloodline, and God gave both Ahab. And his descendants ample time to repent of their sin. They did not repent of their sin. And so God, as he looked at this bloodline of Ahab, seeing that they were just going to continue the same wickedness, the same idolatry, that no one in his bloodline was going to rise up and be righteous and turn the nation toward God. He ordered that that bloodline would just be ended in the history of Israel. Sometimes people have a little bit of a problem uh, with that and God being that decisive. He only he can do something like that because only he can look all the way through human history, know what people are or aren't going to do. That certainly is a, is it a decision that a human being can make, but God can certainly make it. I, I personally, as I mentioned the last time, I have no problem with God uh, acting. I don't have a problem with God, period. God of the Bible, but I certainly don't have any problem with him when he looks and says, all right, that's enough of, the, of this portion of the world's population and even God's people. That's enough of innocent people bearing the consequences of the evil and the wickedness of this leader. None are going to change in his lineage. And so I'm going to take them out in terms of human history. You think about um, in certain parts of the world today where you have entire countries that have been taken over by very wicked, perverse, ungodly men who are willing, and it's not just today, but it's been through history, willing to allow millions and millions of innocent people to die of starvation, willing to kill the righteous, to martyr righteous people uh, in order for them to continue in their wickedness. And when God in His wisdom gives space to repent, and that isn't taken up by those people with the warning. Uh, I certainly think that uh, I can only speak for myself. I rejoice if he steps up in his righteousness and brings an end to the whole thing and brings in a change. And I suspect that if any of us were citizens of a country like that, where we were watching ourselves be abused, our wives, our husbands, watching our children and our grandchildren, no future out in front of them because of the wickedness of one man and the power grab, the concentration of power among his sons, and they're every bit as wicked as him. And God brings an end to that. Um, It it wouldn't cause me to regret that kind of action at all. And so that is exactly what God has uh, determined to do with the bloodline and the dynasty of Ahab. Doing it through um, uh, Jehu and Jehu has uh, begun that by uh, executing or killing uh, Jehoram, uh, one of the descendants of Ahab. Ahab is now dead by this point in time. And now he moves on further into the family of Ahab and bringing this judgment upon them. Now, Ahab's had 70 sons in Samaria and Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons. Now, in those days... I guess kings were pretty busy people, and so they didn't necessarily raise their own children. And so that especially the sons would be delivered over to prominent elders or prominent uh, leaders among the nation to then be raised and educated by those prominent leaders. And so here there are these 70 sons being raised in just such a fashion. And so uh, uh, Jehu sends a letter to them. And uh, wrote them and declared, now, as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, Jehoram's sons, Ahab's uh, descendants, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and... Fight for your master's house, and so he calls on them and declares that he's essentially declaring war uh, on on that family, and and basically tells them choose the most able of these descendants to now be the king and lead in a battle against me because I'm coming after you. Essentially, and uh, and so the warning is given here. He fully expects that these men are going to not give up their power so easily. They're not going to turn to him so easily. That there will be a fight involved, and he's probably shocked that they uh, acquiesced or yielded so quickly uh, to his demand. But we notice their response in verse four. They were exceedingly afraid. And said, look, two kings could not stand up to him, to Jehu. He's wiped out the king of Israel. He's wiped out the king of Judah. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house and he who was in charge of the city, the elders also, they all got together, those who reared the sons. And they sent a letter to Jehu, a message, and they said, we are your servants. We will do all you tell us. But we will not make any one king. We're not going to fight against you. Do what is good uh, in your sight. And so they have good reason to be afraid. They are afraid. So they submit themselves to Jehu. And uh, they're just opportunists. They feel, all right, the power's gone from over here. The power's moved over here. We'll just shift over here. And uh, so they said to him, essentially, you name it. And uh, we will do it. And so Jehu wrote a second letter to them saying, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. And so Jehu called for the execution of the 70 sons or descendants, and uh, the surest evidence of an execution is a head that's been removed. And uh, so he said, I want you to bring heads, their heads as an evidence of, of their uh, death, the 25 miles to Jezreel within 24 hours. And uh, so when the Uh, And now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons, slaughtered seventy persons, put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. And then a messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's son. And Jehu said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. And so it was in the morning that he went out and he stood and said to all of the people, you are righteous. Indeed, I have conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all of these? And so he declares that he's he has been called by God uh, to perform this act uh, of uh, eliminating this bloodline. He takes full responsibility for the actions even that they they took in. Uh, In uh, fulfilling his orders there. And he declares in verse in verse 10. Now know that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord uh, spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. So again, Elijah had uh, declared and spoken to Ahab himself. Again, back in First Kings chapter 21, that uh, Ahab's wickedness and the wickedness of his family, they were it was going to force this judgment. And uh, and so God, uh, Jehu declares God's judgment after his patience had worn out, so to speak, uh, had uh, then he ordered this judgment and it was in fulfillment of God's word. And so Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, the remainder of his blood relatives, but then in addition to that, all of his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left none remaining. Now, in verse 11, he exceeds what God called him to do. And God took note of it. And God spoke uh, later through the prophet Hosea, and he said, Uh, To uh, uh, He said, for in a little while, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel, what Jehu has just done in verse 11. In a little while, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So what this communicates to us is that even in the execution of this bloodline, God's judgment was very, very measured. It was very precise. It was very deliberate. He told Jehu to do a certain thing. And when he exceeded that something, even by an inch, now he moves from righteous judgment to unrighteous judgment, and he holds Jehu responsible for it. God never told him To kill all of these other people. Jehu probably thought, well, these are all the best friends and distant blood relatives of Ahab. And so they're going to look to take vengeance out on me. They'll always be a threat to me. So I'll just clean up the whole thing. It was probably an oversight on God's part. And so I'll just take things into my own hands and and go two steps beyond what it is that he's asked. But God did not call him to do that. And again, I think it's very interesting, as we saw with God eliminating uh, the wickedness within the land and the conquest of Canaan by the children of Israel. His judgment, always very measured, very precise, very deliberate, never anything reckless. He never loses his temper and just starts wiping people out. Long period to give to uh, repent. And when Jehu exceeds, the Lord takes note of it and it doesn't uh, please him. And he arose and he departed and he then went to Samaria and on the way at Beth Eked of the shepherds. So he's moving south now toward Judah. Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said to them, remember, he has, he has killed Ahaziah at the same time he killed Jehoram. Because they were uh, blood relatives and Ahaziah was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah related by blood to Jehoram. And he was going up to visit him to see how he was doing related to his wounds in a battle with the Syrians. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he ended up uh, dying as well. And so here are uh, the blood relatives of the southern king, uh, kingdom of uh, Judah, or the king of Judah, they're coming now to uh, visit with Jehoram. And obviously, I mean, there's no CNN, there's no texting, uh, there's no uh, any of these kind of things. News travels slow, so they're unaware of the actions that are going on in the judgment of the Lord. And so Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said to them, He doesn't know who they are, they're out in the middle of. Uh, kind of a wilderness area there. Who are you? And they answered, we're the brothers of Ahaziah. And we have come down to greet the uh, sons of the king, Jehoram, and the sons of the queen mother, speaking of Jezebel. So they said, we're on a friendly social visit uh, with, you know, the, the descendants of, of Ahab. And then Jehu said, take them alive. And so they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Aked. 42 men, and he left none of them there. And so uh, the uh, his destruction of them as well. And so now when they uh, when he had departed from there, he met uh, Jehanadab, the son of Rahab. That's Well, that's how you really do it. Clear my throat. A Little Jewish for you there on things. kind of a guttural thing. And so but that's was that what it was. So Jehonadab uh, was coming out to meet him and uh, Jehonadab uh, greeted Jehu and said to him, Is your heart right as uh, 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 is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered and said, It is now Jehonadab is a, a uh, he and his descendants were extraordinarily righteous people. Um, very, very serious about God's law, um, about keeping the law of Moses. And so here they are living for God, living a righteous life in the middle of the wickedness of Ahab and his descendants. I mean, you can imagine how hard that must have been to try and live righteously for God. And you're watching these Wicked men and women destroy a nation needlessly. And so Jehonadab gets word that, hey, Jehu's been raised up to wipe out this lineage. There's a new leadership in Israel. And that excites his heart, the news that this has happened. There's a change, maybe a righteous change for the nation that has occurred. And so he seeks out Jehu. When he meets with Jehu, Jehu asks him, what's, what's his heart toward him? Are you in approval with what God has called me to do? Or do you have a problem with it? And, uh, and Jonadab, of course, uh, said, I don't have a problem with it. My heart is with you. And thus Jehu said to him, if it is, give me your hand. And so he gave him his hand. And uh, Jehu then lifted him up into his chariot. And then he said to him, "Come with me and see the zeal, uh, see my zeal for the Lord." And so they had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke uh, to Elijah. Now, this um, zeal that Uh, Jehu had and he speaks there in verse 16. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And so Jehu begins to show off his zeal for the Lord. When we are used by the Lord as his instrument, uh, either of rebuke or of judgment in another person's life, the Bible teaches that we are never to enjoy it. That we are never to celebrate it. God is going to bring judgment on the children of Israel a little bit later in their history. And he's going to use the surrounding nations to judge them. And they, they will judge the children of Israel as God's instruments, but they will enjoy it too much. And they will go too far in, uh, in their violence. And the Lord then would bring judgment on them For enjoying the judgment that he was bringing on Israel, and so the uh, motives that we have behind being used by God or in uh, in a thing of uh, judging or in an area of rebuke, those motives are noted by the Lord. And Jehu is misrepresenting God's heart here. I like Ezekiel when he writes of the heart of God in judgment. He said, the Lord spoke through Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die? O house of Israel, I understand that Pastor Matt taught on restoration or reconciliation and um, in the last couple of weeks and. And I'm sure, and I'm going to touch on a passage that that he taught in the New Testament application of it. Galatians chapter six, verse one. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual under the control of the Holy Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so the Lord Sometimes, And I think it's one of the most neglected aspects, one of the most neglected passages in the entire New Testament. And it's the one that calls upon us as Christians to exhort one another daily, especially as we see the return of the Lord drawing near. We don't um, probably exhort one another in terms of wrongdoing and that kind of thing, even under the direction of the Holy Spirit, as much as is probably is needed in the body of Christ. And, and so, but when the Lord tells us to do something like that, and we obey Him in that, and faithful are the wounds of a friend, aren't they? Those things are to be done quietly and soberly and with a real sense of godly sorrow, no showing off. And I think that it's so important if God calls us to do that or He gives us a ministry where that is a main part of that Uh, of the ministry, then it needs to be done with the right attitude. And I think it's a very needed lesson for someone like Jehu who is a a zealot and, uh, and he got a little too zealous here. I would say that when we become conscious of our zeal for the Lord and we begin to speak of it and advertise it Probably something is wrong. We're probably in danger of going beyond where we ought to go related to it. It's a good thing to have that zeal, but it's it's a good thing to have it and not be conscious of it, because now it can become a source of pride. And uh, now we're going to be, uh, uh, you, you know, have this tendency to overstep related to it. It's better to let others notice our zeal. And uh, and to do so independent of our own uh, boasting. Now, then Jehu gathered all the people together and he said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. And so he's wiped out the existing leadership. Uh, Baal worship was introduced into the northern kingdom of Israel by Jezebel, uh, the the wife of, of Ahab. And so now he's going to eradicate this from the northern kingdom of Israel, which is a good thing. Now, when he becomes the king, the followers of Baal, they don't know where he stands spiritually. The guy comes like out of nowhere. Nobody can not like a Supreme Court justice where they can dig into everything that they've said for the last 40 years and find something dumb that he did at age 17 or her and then disqualify him on a political uh, basis. So they don't know anything about him. They don't know if he's a worshiper of Jehovah. They don't know if he's a worshiper of Baal. They don't know any of these things. And so when he comes together and he declares, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. They have to just be saying, wow, this is fabulous, because he could have been a new king coming in and and destroyed Baal worship. But looks like we've got a friend in uh, in, in the king and our uh, idolatrous worship is going to be allowed to continue. And so well, wonderful as they think, wow, we've got a fellow Baal worshiper uh, in the king. And so he summons them. Verse 19. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests. Let no one be missing. For I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshippers of Baal. And so everyone is summoned to this great inaugural sacrifice uh, to Baal. And, uh, And so that proclamation was declared. And then Jehu sent throughout all Israel... And called for all of the worshipers of Baal to come. And so there was not a man left in the whole kingdom who did not come. And so they came to the temple of Baal. And the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe. He said bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. And so he brought out vestments for them. He said bring out all of their whatever they wear. Uh, When they go to church there, let them all put this on. And basically, he's having them wear these things so they identify themselves as a worshiper of Baal. And then Jehu and Jehonadab, uh, the su- uh, son of Rechab, went out into went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. I mean, you've got to give this guy credit. I mean, he's like dotting every I and crossing every T. He doesn't want to uh, make sure that any innocent worshiper uh, of of Jehovah's like wandered into the wrong place, got the wrong message. And so make sure the only worship of Baal's Baal is there in the in the room. And so they all went in to offer sacrifices and burn offerings. Now, Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside. And he said to them, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, uh, it shall be his life for the life of the other. If you let anybody out and spare their life, then you'll be executed as a result. Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them, let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword, and then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. All of this, the introduction of Baal worship, the encouragement of the all worship among the children of Israel, all of it forbidden by the law of Moses. It was a capital crime according to the law of Moses to introduce anyone into the worship of anything other than the Lord. So they knew the law of Moses, they knew what the standard was, they knew what the consequences were, they engaged in it anyway thought God was going to blink related to this or that he wasn't serious about his warnings or his judgment and then and God is serious about his warnings and his judgment and he steps in and basically what happens here is the ex- execution of the the standard of the law of Moses related to idolatry they went into the inner room or the most holy place of the temple of Baal they brought out the sacred pillars uh, out of the temple of Baal and they burned them and then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal. So uh, something about this was the holiest part of their whole worship. And so they tore down the temple of Baal and they made it a refuse dump uh, to this day. And so that was kind of the ultimate um, uh, way of defiling something. And, and it can be that they made them into a garbage pit or that they made it into uh, public toilets. And uh, so this is what they uh, did with it. It was like you have uh, made a, a, a garbage pit of our nation on the basis of your idolatry. And we will, in turn, uh, make uh, defile this in a way that you can never return and rebuild that temple. And thus, Jehu uh, destroyed all from Israel. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all of Israel to sin. That is From the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And so um, here is this. uh, He eliminates the the Baal worship, but he fails to eliminate the idolatry uh, that was the worshipping of those golden calves in uh, in, uh, Bethel and also in the city of Dan. And so he's the kind of guy who Jehu is who absolutely hammers. Uh, the sins of other people. Uh, but he's very, very lenient uh, toward his own sins. He's, he's happy to be uh, partially obedient. But the old saying is, partial obedience is disobedience, and that's how God views it. And so, to me, the encapsulation of Jehu is, is he was a man who had a great zeal for the things of the Lord concerning everybody else's life, but not for his own. I, God spare us those kind of leaders among God's people who are zealous for the removal of everybody else's sin, but they're not zealous for judgment to begin in the house of God in their own hearts. And, and so uh, this was the weakness of his life. And we should never, ever boast in any zeal of the Lord that doesn't first purge our own life um, of, of sin. So. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab, all that was in my heart, your sons shall, shall your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But you don't, don't want to see a but there, but there is. Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all of his heart. It's a heart issue with him. For he did not depart from the sons of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. And in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel and Haziel conquered them in all the territory of Israel, the king of Syria and from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben. Half tribe of Manasseh, remember all the way back when the conquest of the land under Joshua and Gad, Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh said, hey, we're cattle people and we want to settle outside of the promised land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so they did. Well, they became the first casualties uh, of of the conquest that was coming uh, against uh, Israel, ultimately by the Assyrians. And so. Uh, from Aroer, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. So uh, Jehu was a weak leader um, and and he didn't make a stand for the Lord. And so the Lord continued to judge the northern kingdom of Israel under him and basically just began to part it out, just began to allow uh, enemies of them to start to take pieces of of the land before they were ultimately conquered. Uh, totally. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so Jehu rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And, and then uh, Jehoiah has his son reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. And then um, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah. Remember, again, Ahaziah There's a lot of A's in here, aren't there? And there's a names and all this kind of stuff. Again, Ahaziah was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah who went up to visit Jehoram, who had been uh, injured in the battle, and he ended up being shot dead uh, by the archers by Jehu. So we, we shift from the northern kingdom of Israel now down into the southern kingdom of Judah. So the mother of Ahaziah, when she heard that her son was dead, she arose and she destroyed all of the royal heirs. She makes a power play uh, to uh, garner all of the power so that she might become the leader of the southern kingdom of Judah. And she was successful in destroying, uh, almost successful in destroying all of the royal heirs. Now, to give you a sense of the wickedness of this woman. We're talking about her grandchildren. So she takes and she looks at her son. Her son is dead now. Who does she have to kill so she doesn't have a threat to her taking the throne? And she kills all of her grandchildren in order to take the throne. There's a terrible grandmother, of course. And, and so um, this, is, this is the type of, of gal that, that she is. It's significant to note. That she was a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So she's a chip off the old blocks uh, for sure. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King uh, Joram, uh, sister of Ahaziah, He took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. And so he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years. That is uh, the temple while Athaliah reigned over the land. And so here is uh, Jehoshaphat there in verse two. She is... uh, 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 also a blood relative of, of the reigning family there. But she is the wife of the high priest at the time. And when this slaughter begins to occur, she runs in and grabs this boy, Joash, Jehoash, Joash. He goes by both names in the Bible. He's no more than one year old. And she very courageously goes in. We don't know where grabs this child and then takes the child into the temple where she lives somewhere on the premises with her high priest husband and proceeds to hide him for the next six years. And right underneath the nose of uh, Athaliah is this survivor of this purge. And she never, ever thinks Uh, to find him at the temple because she's a worshiper of Baal and has no interest in going to the temple. The safest place that you could hide that kid was at the temple because that woman has never gone to the temple. Do you believe that there are people that if you had a thousand dollar bill you could put it in their Bible and that'd be the safest place you could ever put it that they'd never find it there? Or you could take your wealth and Put it in any church in town and you'd know they're never going to go there and take it because they'll never, ever go into a church because of their wickedness. Well, this is the way that the woman was. And so for six years, the child has kept a secret. The child is uh, kept hidden uh, for that period and, uh, and and is saved and and, and is uh, rescued. Now, the implications of what's happening here. In these first three verses is very, very significant because here the bloodline of David comes within one child of being wiped out and all of the prophecies and the promises of God's word associated with that bloodline hangs in the balance on the basis of one single child that nobody knows exists except for two people. I mean, the very promise of bringing the Messiah into the world through the lineage of David for six long years among God's people, it looked to them like God's word has absolutely been proven wrong because David's lineage has been brought to an end by the destruction of this wicked woman of that bloodline. Six years, I mean, you think about that. As a student of the Bible here almost 3,000 years ago, you sit and you think, wow, all those promises about the Messiah, all those promises associated with David, now they're all dead. How can we believe a single promise God has made if He can't protect His promises? And the people that he's made promises concerning in that way. And for six years, it looked like God's word had been disproved, that he had said something that was false. And yet, as we see here and as we're going to see, that child was alive. The bloodline was alive. It's a funny thing, and one of the reasons it's significant to me on And this, along with several other things, is so often people will come up with, um, you know, some kind of a study or some kind of a this or some kind of that. And they say, this this disproves the truthfulness of the Bible on this issue or that issue. And it never moves me. Not anymore. By the grace of God, I'm not anything special. And I think about this situation here where it looked like God's word had been disproved for six years. And all everyone had to do was just hold on, take a deep breath, wait. And God's promise was going to be proven true. It was just a matter of time before it was revealed. And so you get all these things about evolution. or You get all these things about the archaeologists and Pilate. It's interesting. We just were in Israel and, and for all of these long centuries, they doubted the existence of Pontius Pilate because they had no physical ancient record of Pontius Pilate. And then the archaeologists are digging in the area of Caesarea And they find this big stone with a carving of Pontius Pilate's name in it from the time of Christ. And this stuff just goes on all the time. And I just say to the archaeologists, keep on digging, baby. Just keep on. You are our best friend. But never be moved by these kind of reports related to God's word. This scientific thing or this thing over here, this disproves and this, it never does. You hold on to that Bible and you just wait it out because this Bible is true. God stands behind it. He'll always have the final say. In in all of it, and it makes us realize that we are basing our lives and our eternities on the surest thing in the whole world, uh, the promises of God's word. And so but for six years there, it looked like, oh, my, the whole thing with God is all kaput. And in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and he brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and the escorts, and he brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and, they, and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord. So he, the, basically what you've got is the elite. You've got the Navy SEAL. You've got the Green Beret. These are the elite military guys in the southern kingdom of Judah, whose responsibility was to protect royalty, to protect uh, at this time the queen. And she was the only queen that either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom of Israel ever had. Other than that, they all had, all they had were kings. So these were really, really tough guys. And Jehoiada, who is the high priest, after six years, he brings them in and he says, I want you to take an oath. And he probably made them swear that they wouldn't do any harm to the child that he was about to reveal to them, because if they had like a loyalty to this woman This wicked woman that just one use of the spear, and they could kill the boy. And so he's going to reveal the boy to them. He took an oath from them, and then he showed them the king's son. Man, can you imagine being one of those guys? And it just hits you. The bloodline is alive. For six years we've been in this place. We couldn't believe it. We thought that this woman was going to be what we're stuck with forever. And here, one of the descendants is alive. Oh, I bet it produced something heroic in them. And he commanded them, saying, this is what you shall do. One third of you shall come on duty on the Sabbath. He chooses to do this on a Sabbath day. One of the reasons is because that would be a time he's going to to make, uh, the boy, the king, he's going to uh, 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 crown him as king. And, and so he wants to do it on the Sabbath because that's when there would be the most activity surrounding the temple. And so one third of you, when you come on duty on the Sabbath, shall keep uh, be keeping watch over the king's house. One third shall be at the gate of suor And one third at the gate behind the escorts. And you shall keep the watch of the house, lest it be broken down. And two contingents. You know, I like a priest who can put a battle plan together. I'll tell you, that's when. Okay, we just will spare you all of that. Two contingents of you shall go off. Uh, duty on the Sabbath, who go off duty on the sh- Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the King, but you shall surround the King on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. And so the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were off duty on the Sabbath. And they came to Jehoiada, the priest. And so essentially what he's, he's setting them up for is, I want all of you guys to be there on that day and I want you to put a line of fence in front of this boy, and I want you to put a line of defense behind this boy. Nothing can happen to him. And they agreed to do that. And the priest then gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields, which had belonged to King David, that were being kept in the temple of the Lord. In other words, when the people saw these weapons, knew that they were about a part of the temple, they would realize that this wasn't just something that these military guards were doing, but this had the endorsement of the high priest and the Lord himself. And so the escort stood every man with his weapons in his hands all around the king, and from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple by the altar and the house, and he brought out the king's son, put the crown. I mean, the people are just seeing him. I mean, they're wasting their time making movies out of the junk they make movies out of today. Here's some movie material for you. So, here, I mean, after six years, they bring the king out, the seven year old boy. And they put the crown on him and make him the king. They gave him the testimony which refers to the law of Moses. In other words, they're they're saying, now we crown you king. Our only thing that we request of you is that you govern us on the basis of the righteous standard of the law of Moses. And so they gave him that testimony. Moni, they made him the king and they anointed him, again pouring oil upon him, a symbol of the Holy Spirit who would empower him now to be king. And then they clapped their hands. They had a little hoe down there 3,000 years ago. It wasn't like, okay, everybody clap now. They were so excited. I mean, you, you take these, imagine these 300 men. And obviously they're very virtuous men. And they're spending their lives protecting a woman who killed all of her grandchildren to reign. And she's a worshiper of Baal. I mean, they really had to just grind on them. And then now here is this, everything has changed. They clap their hands and they said, long live the king. Well, if you've got a king that's anointed by the Holy Spirit and he's going to rule on the basis of God's word, you can say, long live the king concerning him. And so they do. At least that's their hope concerning him. And then when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, so she's somewhere in the vicinity and she hears a commotion she hasn't heard before. And what's the commotion? Long live the king. I mean, that had to be just slightly alarming to her. So she hadn't heard that in a long time. And so she hears this commotion, this unusual noise, and all of the people rushing in that direction, no doubt. She came to the people that were uh, gathering, you know, quickly there in the temple. And when she looked, and I'll tell you, I'd I'd give a quarter uh, for a picture of this. She looked and just had to be like Marty Feldman eyes. Just the gigantic bulging eyes. She looked. And there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing. Ding, dong. Well, it's another, that's a different story, isn't it? So they're rejoicing, and they're blowing trumpets. All of this is just... This is just layer after layer after layer of bad news for her. And so she realizes she's in real trouble here. But you talk about chutzpah. I mean, talk about nerve. This woman, she takes and she tears her clothes. It's just a sign of grief. And she cried out, treason, treason. (laughs) She's the one that's guilty of treason. The boy was intended to be the king. She committed treason. And usurping uh, the throne. And then now here she is. She's going to accuse all of them uh, of, of treason. Ah, self-deception. It's a terrible thing when you get away from God. And then Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army. And he said to them, take her outside under guard. Slay anyone with the sword who follows her. Uh, uh, for the priest said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. And so they seized her and they went by the way of the horse's entrance into the king's house. And there she was killed again in line with the requirements of the law of Moses. It was a capital crime to lead the nation, to lead God's people into the worship of any other God than the Lord. Why is God so serious about it? Why does he make it a capital crime? Because it affects people's eternities, their faith in Christ, and so she was guilty of violating that, and and so in accordance with the law of Moses, uh, she was uh, executed, uh, just as she uh, ought to have been. It's interesting. You look at that, and I mean, it, for six long years, it looks like evil's prevailing in the northern kingdom of Israel. And, but the, the problem with evil and the reason it can never hold the reins of power forever is because evil is not based upon truth. It has sown within it its own, the seed for its own destruction. It, evil can only survive as it reacts against for only a short period of time against righteousness. Once it uses up all the oxygen in the room, it collapses on itself. And so anytime there's evil, just pure evil like this in human history, it it can only go on for a time until ultimately it collapses. It overlooks something that God is doing or some weakness in its position. And and ultimately, it's it's overthrown. All you have to do is to wait it out. And so for six years, she thinks her whole world is secure. This is never going to come to an end. Uh, her wicked reign is, is going to go on, you know, unhindered in, in her lifetime. Wakes up that morning just like any other morning and wham! God brings it to a stop and he establishes, at least for a time, the righteous reign of Jehoash. And we'll stop there in verse 16 and pick it up in verse 17 next time. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. And so I just want to read a couple of verses as we introduce uh, the Lord's Supper tonight. The worship team would come forward and if the men would come forward, who are going to serve